Michael McMullen, this is the World Snooker Tour podcast, and although it's our last episode of the season, in another way, it's a first, because it's the very first time we've had someone who isn't either a player or an ex-player, but it is someone who's had a huge impact on the game over so many decades now, it is the one and only Barry Hearn. Barry, welcome along. Always good to be here, but my first time, my debut, I'm quite nervous, a real podcast on snooker, Well, We'll put you at ease. I wonder, Barry, have you ever stopped to think over the years how different your life might have been if you'd never met Steve Davis? Yeah, I do. I actually often think about that. I think when you get older, you do get a bit more reflective anyway. You know, you get a bit more time on your hands. And you say, you know, I would probably have ended up being a chartered accountant in private practice. You know, I would have done okay, but I wouldn't have had the fun or the success, I'm sure, that I've had thanks in no small part to Steve Davis and Snooker. So... Yeah, I'd have just, you know, I'm, you develop as a human being, don't you, over the years. And I would have, had, had I not met Steve, my career path at that time was to eventually end up in private practice. So there you go. I could have been a boring chartered accountant instead of a boring president of World Snooker. Well, there was nothing boring about events in this wonderful theatre we're sitting yeah. in now, back in 1981, when you were responsible for... Perhaps the most famous crucible moment <laughs> that didn't involve one of the actual players, which yeah. was you running onto the stage and giving that great big hug to Steve. And it was like the two of you were saying to each other, because you were clearly really good mates even yeah, then, yeah. we've done it and this is just the beginning. Well, it, exactly. That captures the moment entirely. Uh, I'm not overplugging my book, but it starts off with the reflection of 1981 and me sitting in the audience and, so, and I can remember it so clearly because even as I'm talking to you now you start getting the hairs on your arm going up, this place has been special and that was a special day but I remember so clearly sitting there just saying to myself over and over again because I know my weaknesses don't do anything stupid don't mm-hmm. do anything stupid and then of course as soon as he potted the pink I did something very stupid and became you know, it's been a point of ridicule for everybody, in my, especially my family, take the mick out of me every time that clip comes up. But I think most people love it, Barry, yeah, because yeah, in a world they where people... They probably do, but they just yeah. don't want to admit it. But it, you see, again, until you understand the significance of two council house boys that had a dream, I know it sounds like a, sounds like a weepy movie, but it's not. It was a celebration. It was, on the one part, we've only gone, we have only gone and done it. Um, I always said we when Steve won, and I always said Steve when he lost. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm quite open about it. But we've only gone and done it. And then the realisation was, and our world's never going to be the same again. And the World Championship was never the same for the rest of the 80s as Steve kept on winning it. And yeah. I was just going to say there that in a world where people are often afraid to show their emotions, I think people love Ooh. to look back and yeah. see the jubilation. Because you and Steve were both still quite young then, and... As we said, it was just the beginning. And Steve was very much the cornerstone of your empire throughout that yeah. decade. But bit by bit, you started adding more and more players. But you were very selective who you took on. Yeah, I was, because I had in my... You know, you try to have a vision. You know, firstly, we've got this amazing opportunity that out of pure luck, right place, right time. So important in life. BBC showing snooker, in colour, etc., etc. Characters, Higgins and all the others... This, this game was made for television, so now you start thinking, right, well, we need a plan. Out. What are we really going to do? You know, most of the players were quite happy just to get a few quid more. I had a vision of a global sport in the early 80s. So my plan was, why not 
just make it enormous. Uh, let's just open our eyes to other broadcasters, to other sponsors, to other venues, to other countries. And, of course, because of the BBC and World News, especially they were a marvellous asset to us, the phone calls started coming in. The first one coming from Thailand. You know, we've just seen Steve Davis win World Snooker Champions. We like him here. How much you won? I'm like, I haven't got a clue. I've never done this before. So I said, $20,000, they went, okay. I thought, I could have got a lot more. Um, but the fact is, we had interest from everyone. And then we had the buzz, you know, being pioneers, being people, I don't know, the first person that went across America and found gold is what I found when I found Steve Davis and I found Snooker. But it needed someone to drive the wagon. You and know. you drove it to all sorts of places. I oh, mean, yeah, you might yeah. not even remember. There was an event in Tokyo that Dennis won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You launched that World Series, which, you know, one yeah, way or nearly, another. Nearly launched it. Yeah, yeah. Cancelled it during the football scores, I remember that. That's right. We got a few events, though. And yeah. actually, you mentioned no. America there. Well, we did Brazil. Yeah. Uh, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. You know, I mean, Canada, we had the Canadian Open. No, we was all over the place. Because we were just boys on an adventure, and it was like we have no idea where we're going, but let's ramp it. Let's ramp it up. Now let's shout from the rooftops and see who joins us on this journey. And of course, one of the people that joined us on the journey was the Chinese government and the Chinese sports ministry, who said, "Can you come to Beijing and play a tournament? And can you also bring a billiards player with you?" Mm. Because the leader of the Chinese National Party at the time was a a billiard fan in his youth, and we're there with the, the decision makers for the whole of China, about 16 of them, watching Rex Williams against Steve Davis playing billiards. And that was tied in with a big snooker event, the first one in China, really, yeah. on that scale. In the great hall of the people, yeah. Yeah, and we were talking about America there. Weren't there plans at one stage that World Series, if yeah. it had come oh. through fully, was going to include an event in Las Vegas? Well, but we played an event in Dallas. We played a pool event and a snooker event on the Dallas Ice Rink, which we covered over in the shopping centre at Dallas. I trained with the Dallas Cowboys, and so did Terry Griffiths, and so did Steve Davis. Two Tall Jones was one of our big supporters out there, who was about six foot nine. And you know, these were the days of adventure where there were no rules, and it suited my personality and my nature to just say, "Well, when you've got nothing." Let's hype it up and see what happens. And, of course, the snooker boom led to a boom in tables, particularly in Southeast Asia. Raleigh's were paying us a lot of money for advertising their tables. The fans were turning out. We had 4,500 in uh, the Queen Elizabeth Stadium in Hong Kong, every one of whom loved Jimmy White to death. And the boys worked hard, and I worked them hard. So we would do, if we were doing an exhibition tour, we would do six clubs in a day. It's hard work, you know, and we just, we, I don't think we stopped laughing. We earned good money, but we had a ball of a time. You know, it's sponsored by Camus Cognac. That's probably one of the reasons we had such a good time. We was, became connoisseurs of top market cognac. We went everywhere. We had Jimmy White, who was just, as Jimmy is, such a personality when he travels. People loved him, and Jimmy was in uh, an exotic mood, shall we say, most of the time. He, he liked to party. But the fans came out, and they went away as snooker fans, and the whole of the Southeast Asia snooker market came from that period in time. And the people you're talking about became huge household huge, names, huge. totally transcending the sport in yeah. the 80s and, and a little bit beyond that. 
But you did the same. You must have chuckled sometimes thinking to yourself, Barry, of all the things I would have imagined I'd one day become famous for, who would ever have thought when you were growing up that being a snooker manager could make you such a famous name? Who'd have thought? I mean, with the first phone call from Thailand to say, would you come out here with Steve Davis? I didn't even know where Thailand was. And of course, when they asked for a list of demands and they were saying yes to everything... I said, well, first-class airline tickets. They said, of course. I, I didn't even know there was a first-class in those days. I thought everyone turned right. And, you know, so it was a lifestyle thing as well. And it was, it was a giggle. It was an absolute giggle because it was so new to all of us. But you couldn't help feeling at the same time, commercially, that there was something to work on here because the demand was extraordinary. And after a while, you ended up stepping back from snooker. You never completely cut your ties with it, but you weren't managing so yeah, many players. No, no. You weren't promoting so many events. I always got the sense you became a bit frustrated that you had all this ambition and well, vision and you were maybe being a bit held back well, by there's no the doubt. politics. There's no doubt about that. The politics in snooker eventually killed me early doors. I wasn't as tough then as I am now, but it was very frustrating to have a vision And this is the problem, and I know it's an old story of mine, but it's a problem of giving the players power because players will naturally be selfish and only like the things that are beneficial to themselves. Because snooker had made me, I seriously wanted things that were going to be beneficial to snooker, not individuals. So the old boys that were at the top of the tree in the late 80s, throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, they had their own agenda. They wanted to keep the cake for themselves. What I wanted was not a cupcake, I wanted a wedding cake, which we could hopefully cut and share to more people and to grow the game globally. But eventually, I suppose, like any boxer, you know, you take so much punishment, you got a bit battered, and uh, in the end, boxing came into my life in 87, Paul started coming to my life in 1990 and other matchroom events. And they were, they probably replaced a lot of the fun I was having from snooker because there I was greeted with open arms, you know, because I was new and I was fresh and, you know, I had ideas. And it wasn't until, I never, I never stopped doing snooker. I just did a lot less of it because I became a promoter of just a few events um, rather than, and this is mid-90s and late-90s, I think the frustration really took its toll. And I thought, you know, I'm doing okay. I really can't be bothered with this lot. And it wasn't until that famous phone call many years later when they suggested, would you come back as chairman and and have a look at the game because it's dying. And it was completely dying. And we will come to that in a moment. Mm. But first of all, I want to take you back to something that happened in the middle of all that. And you mentioned your book there. It's called Barry Hearn, My Life. Knockouts, snookers, bullseyes, tight lines and sweet deals, which I think actually sums up just how varied your your life and your career has been. But you speak in it quite honestly about the tough times you had Mm -hmm. around about 30 years ago when you ran into major financial trouble. Now, people would look at it and say you had all this success in the 80s. So how did it come to such a bad situation? Well, it's called a recession. And none of us, it was a bit like COVID, I suppose. You know, no one can escape things that are outside of your power or control. So I made a lot of money in 1982 when I sold my snooker chain. I was 34, I was going to retire, but I thought, no, we're having some fun. Steve's a great mate. We have a chance to spread the game around the world. 
Let's form a little company called Matrum and £100 off the shelf company. My two kids were three and five, I think. We'll make them shareholders and we'll just go and have some fun. Matrum was always formed to have some fun, never to be the monster it's grown into. But that was the plan of going around the world and spreading the game. But it was also a plan of, you know, we can make some money as well. We're not, we're not stupid. We, but then when you got to sort of 87, 88, 89, well, 88, 89, rather than 87, 88, 89 was a huge global recession and people went bust. And a lot of people went bust and mainly sponsors went bust. This coincided with a period of my life where I had seen what was happening in America with sports television and I knew in my heart of hearts that that was going to come to the UK at some stage and that they would need events or they would need sports events. So I started creating dozens and dozens of events, all of which lost money, coupled with the fact there was a global recession. So I ended up, rather than being quite wealthy, actually ended up owing the bank millions of pounds because I'd invested it probably a couple of years too early. Uh, it proved to be a good decision in the long run, but it did give me two years of brutal stuff. I mean... The sponsors for the UK championships, which was £600,000, and I was already banging trouble, went bust. Uh, and I had to pay the players the prize money, which also was £600,000. So, Just to say that the reason, in case people don't remember or weren't around at the time, that you ended up in that position was that although you weren't running the game, you did actually promote the UK yeah, championship yeah, for I a did. few years. Yeah, 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 I did. Yeah. And I'm responsible, and I take my responsibility seriously. But, you know... There are times when it doesn't matter how smart you are, things go wrong. And what you do is you learn about life and about yourself during those things at times. And although it was a very tough two years, which I would never share it with anybody during that period, including my wife or family, I learned a lot about myself. And I realised I'm tough to get rid of. Which is actually, I came out of that period a bit like when we came out of COVID a few years ago, a year ago. I came out of that feeling as if I was a better operator. Now, whether that's true or not, but my self-belief from 1990 has never taken a backward step. 20 years on from the troubles we've just talked about, you were very firmly back on your feet, on top of the world with the mm. huge success of darts and mm. so many other things. Snooker was going the other way yeah. and it was in a very bad state. And you mentioned there you got the call and everyone knows about what happened then. There were all sorts of votes and everything. <laughs> yeah, good you, fun. You, you decided it was time to get rid of all that and you, you, weren't, you were quite open about that. Mm. You weren't interested in running a democracy. You were going to do things your way and you've justified that mm. with everything that's happened since then. I remember you saying a few months into the job, I think this is going to be easy. Mm. Now, it's certainly been successful. Has it been easy yeah. to turn things around? You, well, comparatively easy. I mean, you've got to remember, you know, this was a little bit like rediscovering your first love, you know? And, you know, oh, maybe there was a few wrinkles in there and a few grey hairs, but it was still your first love. So it was a passion, and I wasn't going to let that, when the more I thought about it, the more I realised this is what I have to do. And I felt, sincerely, I felt I owed the sport something because I think it started me off. Life had been sweet and getting sweeter every year. So I was never, never a worry about that. But I still remember the lessons of frustration from those years ago when people had self-interest at heart. So it wasn't a question, you know, snooker authorities said, or the, the players, some players came to me and said, would you be our chairman? I said, it doesn't work. 
you know, eventually you uh, you will disagree with me and, and I will be right and you will be wrong and you will win and I will lose and that can't be right. So if we're going to do this, we're going to do it all or nothing. And there was a few players out there who were vehemently on my side for which I'll never forget. Funny enough, there was one player, and I'm going to call him out, was so supportive and argued the case so well, I think he was really influential in my decision about why do I really want to be bothered with this job. You've got to bear in mind, you know, God had been kind to me. I was a wealthy man. I didn't need the aggravation of snooker. And that player was Michael Holt. He spoke very well about that. He always does. He's a yeah, clever man. Yeah, he's, he's a smart kid. And of course, he was dead right. I, had, I, you know, I wasn't after killing people. I wasn't after doing bad things. But there were rules that I knew we had to follow. And there were rules to exploit commercial assets that I'm quite... Well, I'm very good at doing. That's what I do. It's my job. I can't pop balls. So I had to take it away from the snooker players. I mean, they'll always have an opinion and there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I hope they form part of the decision-making process as well by the players' committee or whatever because you should listen to everybody. But then you make your own mind up if you know what you're talking about. And that's, the, that's really the reason why we've been successful. A lot of the things we've done were not universally applauded, let's be perfectly honest, you know, from, you know, best of sevens and best of fives to um, seeding systems, ranking systems, to the shootout being, lots of things. People don't see the bigger picture and how you dress up, how you dress a fine woman to go to the ball. And that was the way snooker had been, snooker was, the, you know, just been ignored, it'd been forgotten. People were just, you know, three or four events, they were part-time players, and some of them quite happy to be part-time players because it guaranteed them a certain amount. The seeding system gave the top 16 massive advantages all the time. It was all completely wrong for the modern day sport. And we put that right. Uh, you know, but we are constantly evolving. I mean, that's the thing about being, When you take over a sport, it's like adopting a child. You know, you don't take over just so that you can have, you know, a game of cricket with it on a Saturday afternoon. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So when you take over a sport like snooker, especially if it, has, if it means something to you seriously, does it make money? Yes, of course. If it doesn't, it's not a sustainable business. Is it open? Is it transparent? Is it credible? These are the things you have to think about if you're trying to get broadcasters and sponsors to buy into your vision. Then you're selling it on the back of your own personality, really. Listen, this is going to work. I mean, I didn't know back then, 20 years ago, we was going to get 500 million people watching the World Snooker Championships. But at the same time, snooker is bigger now than it's ever been. And everyone talks about the glory days. They're so wrong because the glory days, the so-called glory days of the 80s, was tiny. Snooker was tiny as a global product. But it was very big in the UK, bigger then than it is now, but, probably. But it's interesting you say that, Barry, because it is true that there's been the global growth. What I think has been just as remarkable is the way things have expanded again in the UK. There are far more big televised events now yeah, than there ever were in the 80s. But it has to be dressed up. It has to be value for money for everyone. It has to be common sense. It has to be formats that are entertaining. You have to think about the casual fan, not the traditional fan. The traditional fan so so small numbers. You know, you've got to widen your net. You've got to think about younger audience. This is a complicated scenario and one that best left with professionals. And me, stroke, matrim, are full of people that have been doing this for a long time. 
So why has darts got to the size it's got so quickly? It's because we are very good operators. Why is boxing now having a rebirth? And hit? Because we are very good operators. Snooker in the 80s was bigger than the European golf tour. Today it's a couple of hundred million behind. So ask yourself the question, were they going down the right path 20 years ago? Clearly not. Are we catching up? Yes, but slowly. But we can get there if we all pull together and we deliver value for money and we deliver entertainment to a global audience. We are ticking boxes and this game is going to go through. At the moment, we still have problems with COVID in China. That's holding us back in terms of five events in China. But the rest of the game is in good shape. And when China comes back, we'll be ready for another big hit. And it's going to be... Listen, I think it's, the game is in good hands and we've got some great players and some talent coming through. I'm beginning to see the soap opera I always wanted to see. And now we're going to change the mood just a little because we have a thing on this World Snooker Tour mm. podcast, Barry, called the Quickfire Round. What? We're just throw a few topics at you just to find out a bit about what you enjoy. Out so I make it game. quick, <laughs> which You're is right. not, not my strong point, <laughs> trying to get it. Right, I'm going to try my best to make sure these answers are... Short answers. Well, let's, let's press on and see how okay. we go. They don't need to be too short. Favourite movie? Favourite movie... Shawshank Redemption. Ah, great choice. Favourite food? Favourite food... I'm going to say Asian fusion, which in other words is a posh name for a good Chinese. Your ideal day off. I know you're not a big fan of days off, but if you do have one, what's the ideal way to do it? Easy. Walk down to my lake in my house... Put the rods in, turn Sky News on, sit in my rocking chair, go to bed whenever I feel like it, cook breakfast at half past five in the morning, catch a few fish, give them a kiss, put them back. Your favourite holiday destination? I have a home in the Caribbean, so that's where I go all the time. And I'm intrigued to hear what you're going to say to this, actually. Your favourite song? Sunshine by John Denver. Why so? Just makes me feel happy. But then again, I do feel happy every single moment of my life. So. But that's a good song to relax to. Let's move on then. And speaking of relaxation, officially you've retired, Barry. But I have to say, every time I've been <laughs> in the building down in Matchroom ever since then, you seem to be there more than ever. So where are you at now? I think I'm you, trying. I'm you, trying so hard. You can't so drag yourself away, can you? I'm trying so hard. Mm. It's, it's been 45 years of my life and it's ingrained. My wife is, sounds like you. You know, what does retirement really mean? I mean, the book launch has been a nice way of keeping in touch with everyone. Um, I'm still, I mean, I'm just excited. To, today is the final day of the World Snooker Championships, although this podcast probably won't go out for a few days yet. But So I'll be playing cricket for Essex on Thursday. I'm looking forward to that. Friday, I won't be walking. Saturday, I probably won't be walking. But uh, I like my business. We're at an exciting time for sport with the digital explosion, with... Here we are doing a podcast on snooker. If you'd have said to me five years ago, you'll be on a podcast for World Snooker, I'd have probably said, what's a podcast? You know, The world is changing and we must be part of that ever-changing world. So I'm going to be in the background watching everything. I believe I've got management that share my work ethos and strategy. And if not, they'll be reminded that they should. You've had a great time along the way, haven't you? In every aspect of your life. Wonderful yeah. family life, great yeah. marriage, yeah, it's huge love. business success. It's huge. It's, 
it's been a dream. The only thing that can change it is dying, and we all die, you know. And, uh, you know, I've survived a couple of heart attacks, and I'm still very active and enjoying myself. I just think it means that, and I know it's a very trite thing to say, is we have to enjoy every moment we have. And sport in my life has been the way I've enjoyed myself. And the, I suppose, the, the spreading of the gospel of sport around the world has been not work. It's just been a pleasure. And I live a life in sport where all I hear is the sound of laughter and all I see is people smiling. What's not to enjoy? If there was one thing you could still do in your life, Barry, and it's got to be something realistic, I'm not talking about winning a Formula One Grand Prix or something like that, but but what, if if you were to sit here now and say, right, there's one thing I've never done that I still want to do with my life, what do you think? I would have liked to broke three hours for the marathon, you know, I got to 3.20 for for an old fat bloke, that was quite good. That's very good. I've always had the discipline to work hard, but against that, I've never had any natural ability you know, so I never made a hundred break at snooker, but you know, I was a decent money player and could make fifties, that sort of thing. You know, that sort of average. Yeah. But what might still lie ahead? I mean, what do you think you can still do that you've never experienced before? I have a few bucket list things I haven't done yet. I want to do the crest to run. I, I, I fancy that. Um, I haven't caught a fifty-pound carp yet. I'm up to forty-nine pound ten ounces. So, and that carp. And by the way, that carp now weighs fifty-eight pounds. I saw a picture of it last week. I caught it three years ago. So there's lots of things. I want to see Matchroom become, you know, when I look back on that and I think, you know, we started Matchroom to have fun and we started in an office underneath a billiard hall and today we're still having fun, but it's also one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sports promotion company in the world. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of satisfaction goes into that. I mean, it's a lot of money as well, but as you get older, the money doesn't have the same attraction as the fun. You've done the complete circle. You start off by making fun, having fun and hope to make a living. And then you end up thinking, I've made a living, but I've got to keep the fun going because that's what gets me out of bed in the morning and that's what makes me enjoy my life. And I still alter my world rankings by hand every single tournament. I'm going to ask you to do one last favour for snooker, Barry. Four years from now, I think it is, we're going to reach 50 years at the Krugs. Yes, and, I know. Wow. Yeah, and around that time... Yep the current contract ends. So yeah. can I ask you to please sign a contract for another 50 years because well, we don't want to leave this place no, despite we don't. the talk. We don't, but everybody's got to be singing from the same hymn sheet. Though I don't, you know, we have a thing in life about talking the talk and walking the walk. So I'll talk the talk, but I'll walk the walk. I want to stay here forever. Forever. Not just five years, forever. But I've got to be... I've got to use my common sense. The place is not perfect. It needs a lot of work done on it. It needs to be bigger, etc., etc. So I will be having a meeting today while I'm here with Sheffield Council and see how I can help potentially to knock this building down and on the same site, let's build something that's 3,000-seater, state-of-the-art, and we'll sign a contract for another 30 years. Now, it may need central government funding, but you know what in life? You only get what you put in. So it's all very well everyone saying, ah, blah, blah. Let's go into the real world. The real world's about spending money. It's not going to cost a fortune in the bigger picture to establish something that the people of Sheffield, the people of Yorkshire and the people of England can be proud of. And I think... 
that is the solution. So I'm saying to everyone, look, it's not going to happen overnight. If we have to leave for a year or two while construction is underway, fine. We'll go to Alexandra Palace for a couple of years. It's not the end. Of, you know, we can, we can put the World Championships anywhere. Anywhere it's going to sell out. I love this place. I love the atmosphere it creates. I love the fact that it's the theatre of dreams and where we where my life started. This would be my greatest legacy for the sport of snooker to see a new crucible built on the site of the old Quince crucible. And I'm going to do everything in my power to convince the powers that be that that would be value for money. Well, we await developments with interest. And that is quite a note on which to end the first season of the World Snooker Tour podcast. Thanks well, so much for joining us, Barry. Well done to you. Good year's work, mate. Carry on. Thank you very much. And thanks to all the players who have joined us and given so generously of their time and their thoughts throughout the season. And, of course, to everyone who's listened to it. Enjoy your summer, and we look forward to the second season of the World Snooker Tour podcast in just a few months' time. Until then, bye-bye.